Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Phil Dave. Me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Diana Toman. Coming up, we'll be speaking to Gideon Falter, the chairman for the campaign against anti-Semitism, about a petition that he has started in a bid to get the UK government to fully ban Hezbollah from the streets of London. This, of course, is ahead of the Al-Quds Day march. We'll also be speaking to Michael Greisman, who's a photographer, and he's going to tell us about his new book that he's put together called Jews in Uniform. It looks at the ex-Jewish servicemen and women who have given up some of them their lives for the UK. And we'll also be hearing, speaking of which, from Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, MBE, on receiving a New Year's honour from Her Majesty the Queen. Seems a trifle strange saying that in June, doesn't it? But all the same, he's recently received his MBE. And our very own Kate Fulton will find out about that a little later on. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the angry reaction from Jewish groups in the UK to Jeremy Corbyn's criticism of the government for not supporting an independent investigation into the recent Gaza deaths. The Labour leader said it was morally indefensible and described Israel's outrageous and indiscriminate brutality after a 21-year-old female Palestinian paramedic was shot dead by Israeli snipers near the Gaza border. The Board of Deputies, though, heavily criticised Mr Corbyn for not balancing his comments with any condemnation of Hamas. An online petition urging the government to completely outlaw the Lebanon-based terror group Hezbollah has gained the 10,000 signatures needed to force a formal reconsideration by the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid. Currently, the UK only bans the armed wing. It comes as the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, expressed his astonishment that the loophole exists, allowing terror flags to fly in London during the annual al Day march. He's written to Mr Javid, asking him to take action. And Gideon Falter from the Campaign Against Antisemitism will be speaking to us very shortly. Supporters of Jeremy Corbyn have reacted angrily to a BBC comedy sketch in the new series of Tracy Ullman's show, which pokes fun at his handling of Labour's anti-Semitism row. It shows the Labour leader being snubbed by an irate Orthodox Jew before being driven off in a cab, apparently, by a Hamas member. Harvey Weinstein has pleaded not guilty to rape and sex abuse charges made separately by two women. The 66-year-old former movie mogul and film producer arrived in a Manhattan court for his first public appearance since he was initially charged two weeks ago. His lawyer, Benjamin Braffman, accompanied him and said his client intended to enter a plea of not guilty, adding that they would move very quickly to get these charges dismissed. A Jewish war veteran who's 101 years old has received his MBE from the Queen. Born in Sunderland, Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen said he was deeply humbled to be awarded the honour for services to education. He'd spent a lifetime teaching in schools across the country about the history and legacy of the war and said he dedicated the award to the 60,000 Jewish soldiers who served in World War II. And we'll be meeting Lieutenant Colonel Morden Cohen later in the show. Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish News this week, we have Justin Cohen, news editor of the Jewish News. And Justin joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. Let's look at the front page. Yeah, on the front page this week, we return to a very significant issue that we've highlighted a number of times on the front page and in the paper over recent years, that of the flying of Hezbollah flags with impunity in London. This week, we actually have a split screen front page, which shows the flag of Hezbollah 
twice next to each other, exactly the same picture, one with the label the political wing of Hezbollah and one with the label the military wing of Hezbollah. This really shows the ridiculous situation that we have continuing in this country, whereby the political wing is not banned, but the military wing is banned, and therefore the flag, and there's only one Hezbollah flag, and that flag, of course, has a gun on it, is allowed to fly in the streets of London. We ask the question, can you see the difference? We show that Hezbollah themselves say there is no difference, but our government continue to insist that there is a distinction between these two wings. Well, where the double standards are, I find, as far as this flag is concerned, is that it was only within the last week or so that there's a footballer who's been absolutely lambasted for having a tattoo of a gun on his leg, saying what a bad impression it gives and what a bad message it sends out. Yet he's been well and truly torn apart for it. And yet, year after year, we see this same flag flying on the streets of our capital. And I believe even the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has appealed to Sajid Javid to try and do something about it. Yeah, Sadiq Khan's been very good on this issue. I think since the last demonstration 12 months ago, he's been very clear that there needs to be a an end on this loophole that allows the flag to be flown in London. I mean, you know, you would never countenance the idea of a flag of ISIS flying on the streets anymore. And if you remember when that flag appeared in some video footage flown and, and promoted by one of the attackers of the London Bridge attacks, the, the, the shock that, that, that you know, came up as a result of that. I don't think we should be waiting until Hezbollah specifically attacks on the streets of London for this for action to be taken. And, and their, their, their string and their litany of attacks around the world over the last 30 years is just as, as horrific and loss has lasted longer than that of, of IS. And one shouldn't really underestimate just how unsettling these sites are and i don't believe for a second it's just for jews you know i'm I'm quietly confident there are several people out there who when they know exactly what the hezbollah group prescribed to and what they actually stand for well we don't need to go into it on this program we know what they stand for by and large but it's just very unnerving seeing that so freely allowed on the streets of london there aren't many issues where we've given the amount of attention to the number of column inches to as we have as this. And I think that reflects the fact that, yes, it's of concern to the Jewish community, but it's also of, of huge concern to the wider community. And that was actually shown by a poll we conducted in January with Comres, which showed that four times the number of Britons who would support the full ban on Hezbollah as opposed it. We have also got a problem with football, haven't we? Argentina has banned a match in Jerusalem this week. Yeah, this is the rather sad situation, depressing situation, whereby the Argentinian Football Association uh, have cancelled their match, their friendly match, not very friendly it would appear, with Israel, which is coming up in Jerusalem. Apparently under pressure from the BDS brigade, apparently there were threats directed at Lionel Messi, their, their star player. This Argentinian team will play in the Russian World Cup and looking at their record on human rights and so on, uh, you know, you'd have to question why they're so happy to play in Russia whilst aren't willing to host Israel for a, for a single friendly match in, in, in or take part in a single friendly match in Israel. Do you think it's a case of the Argentine Football Association being anti-Israel? I think there are many people that come under this type of pressure. Obviously, we've seen a number of musical stars pull out of, of gigs as a result of this BDS pressure. 
I think they they need to answer as to why Israel is the only country that appears that they wouldn't play in. I mean, I haven't I haven't heard them or indeed any other national football association say that they wouldn't play in this country or that country. But again, it comes down to the double standards of BDS, the mm-hmm. fact that it is only Israel that's targeted and and you know, I don't think there are any other sports associations that are asked to boycott any other country. I think that in Argentina's football association's defence, we do need to be quite clear, as you've already said, that there are a lot of details that are a bit up in the air in this. We don't know 100% for definite that this mm. is the reason why they're pulling out of it. It could be based on security fears, because who knows? And that is absolutely what most of the world sees when they look at Israel, is they see this war-torn country. But of course, most of us luckily know the difference. However, one thing also that people shouldn't underestimate is that the campaign that the BDS actually launches at various individuals, it is a case of people succumbing to pressure almost for a quiet life. They might not necessarily believe in the same cause that the BDS movement does, but it's almost as if they have to succumb to it just so that they can, I suppose, focus on other things because it doesn't necessarily mean that much to them as much as it does to say us or indeed the BDS movement. Absolutely. To, to people that don't have any idea about these things and they hear about all these alleged human rights abuses, they see a, a constant trickle of news coverage. They see reports of what happened on the border of Gaza recently. I guess they could be forgiven. But the truth is that if they are going to do that and take such a significant stand over a a match, which, yes, is a football match, but was a pretty significant moment for Israeli sport, they really owe it to Israel and to the world to look into these things a bit more and to see those double standards. This week, Benjamin Netanyahu has arrived in London for a meeting with Theresa May. What's happening there? Well, it's a short visit. It's part of a European tour that also takes in Germany and France. I think the UK is the last leg. He's met along the way Macron and and Merkel. And Theresa May talks at Downing Street, also talks with Boris Johnson, a part of this visit, which I think lasting 24 hours, if that. It really is a trip to focus on the Iranian nuclear issue. I think that's pretty much the first, second and third thing on this agenda. It's very clear that Benjamin Netanyahu has had at the top of his agenda for a long time, making sure that Iran doesn't acquire nuclear weapons and cutting off every opportunity to that happening. Of course, Donald Trump recently stepped out and took America out of the nuclear deal. And now there are question marks over if it can last, if the European leaders will continue to back it, etc., Which which they are doing, aren't they? Because Merkel and Macron have both said they're not going to pull out of the Iran nuclear or pull pull their money or pull their support out of the Iran deal. They're going to continue to support it. Mm. And I guess Theresa May may or may not say the same thing. I'm assuming this trip won't bring up anything particularly revolutionary or change. The position of Europe towards the deal has been very consistent. The position of Netanyahu has been very consistent. Mm. I don't imagine this will change very much, but things have changed in terms of the international climate because of Donald Trump's move. And so I guess Netanyahu is trying to shore up his position, making sure, as, as the UK has said on a number of occasions, that you know it's not under, an, under any illusions about what the Iranian regime is, what they call for, what they do, their support for terrorism, etc. So, you know, I think that that is the focus of and, this. Visit. And the Iranian leadership have said that they will continue to make uranium, which They've already announced this. Yeah, I I think they've stepped up their rhetoric this week. And and also Ayatollah Khomeini has been tweeting about how uh, Israel still needs to be eliminated and so Mm. on just this week. So Iran is Iran and Netanyahu's position and Europe's position 
they, they, they all want to make sure Iran's contained. Britain is very clear that Iran might, mustn't be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. But I guess there's a different, there are different ways of potentially getting there. What about Iftar? A, a big change of tack there. This week, there have been a number of major high-profile iftar celebrations taking place, which, of course, is the uh, meal whereby Muslims break their Ramadan fast. We're approaching uh, the end of Ramadan now, I believe. And part of this, there was a big event at St. John's Wood Synagogue, attended by the chief rabbi, attended by church leaders, attended by the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. And this is, again, part of a pattern. I think the, the chief rabbi became the first to host and if at his own home last year, he's taken part in these big celebrations in the past. I think you know, these stories are needed in, in the kind of times we're in. I think a lot of people might assume that you know, bad news doesn't sell and so on. But I have to say that when we do post these stories about people coming together, about interfaith collaboration of this sort, they do very well. Uh, and, you know, the hits don't lie. And so people are interested in this stuff. Mm. People do celebrate this sort of stuff. And uh, so it's, it's good to see. Yeah, pretty. It doesn't spread to the wider world, really, isn't it? <laughs> but there we go. Maybe there's hope. That's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Justin, for coming in and doing the paper review for us. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, as you were just hearing in the paper review, the Al-Quds Day march is nearly upon us once more, and a petition has been launched in a bid to try and encourage the UK government to fully prescribe Hezbollah, both the military and political wing, ensuring that it will never be seen, hopefully, on the streets of London ever again. The person who launched this particular petition in question is Gideon Falter, the chairman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. I'm delighted to say that Gideon joins us on The Jewish Views now. Gideon, this almost sounds a bit of a strange question coming from a Jewish programme, but just in case anyone listening maybe wonders this, why did you decide to launch this particular bid? Well, the Hezbollah parade, as it's become, has become a fixture of, of London life every single summer now. At the end of Ramadan, the Islamic Human Rights Commission, which is a self-anointed charity, holds this, this, this pro-Hezbollah demonstration through the centre of town, through our most iconic streets. And Hezbollah is an organisation which seeks the genocide of Jews, not just in Israel, but all over the world. It's been blamed for two bombings in London. It's killed Jews from Buenos Aires to, to Burgas. And it needs to be stopped. We cannot possibly tolerate a situation in which the government tells us year after year that they're very, very serious about dealing with extremism and with uh, terrorists who want to kill us. And yet there is a pro-Hezbollah parade through the center of our, of, of our capital city every year. So that's why I launched the petition, because each year the government says that it takes the security of the Jewish community very, uh, very seriously. And we at Campaign Against Anti-Semitism each year find ourselves sending a unit to go and gather evidence at the pro-Hezbollah demonstration. Last year, I'm sure lots of people will remember the remarks of the leader of that march who was saying that the uh, Zionists pay the Tory government to go and burn down tower blocks. And this was just four days after the Grenfell Tower tragedy. And enough is enough. So what we're hoping is that Theresa May didn't prescribe the entirety of Hezbollah. 
Amber Rudd didn't proscribe the entirety of Hezbollah, and hopefully Sajid Javid will, because the government's in this bizarre situation where it proscribes the military wing of Hezbollah and not the political wing of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah itself laughs at that distinction, saying there is no such thing as a political wing or a military wing. We're all one organization. So we need the British government to accept reality and proscribe the entirety of this organization, partly so that it can stop these parades from taking place and partly so that people can't fundraise and recruit for Hezbollah in the UK. Well, as you rightly identify, we do have ourselves a new Home Secretary in the form of Sajid Javid. And is there hope as far as campaign against anti-Semitism is concerned that maybe, just maybe, this might start to be taken even more seriously than I believe, and I think we all believe, the UK government does take it, but potentially... They're just not taking it seriously enough. So is there hope yet? I think there is, because what seems to have happened is that the Foreign Office is very attached to the idea of not proscribing the entirety of Hezbollah. Remember, Hezbollah exerts a huge amount of power in Lebanon, and it forms part of the parliament there and part of the cabinet there. And so there is some nervousness, I suppose, within the Foreign Office about prescribing the whole of Hezbollah, partly because they find it politically convenient to not have to deal with them as a terrorist organization. But politically speaking, that absurd position where we've created this fictional distinction between one part of Hezbollah and the other part of Hezbollah actually isolates us from our allies, because throughout the Arab world, as well as our allies such as the United States and Canada and some of the other European countries, they all don't make any distinction. They say, they say Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. It seeks to kill Jews wherever it can find them. And it is intent on genocide of the Jews. And therefore, we think that's what you call a terrorist organization and we're banning it. So this sort of fudge by the Foreign Office seems to have influenced previous Home Secretaries. But Sajid Javid is someone who's got a very different record on extremism. He's somebody who truly understands it and takes a very much of a sort of zero tolerance line on it. And so we're hoping that great as Theresa May and Amber Rudd and others before them have been in terms of security for the Jewish community, we're hoping that Sajid Javid is going to bring slightly greater understanding to the table when it comes to this and hopefully slightly greater decisiveness and he's going to say to the foreign office look this is not helping anybody you're putting british citizens british jews at risk and i'm not going to take that risk and so i'm proscribing the whole of hezbollah though one can only assume that if we were to put ourselves in the position of the uk government that they do have a very fine line to tread and could it be and i think you've sort of alluded to this already that if they were to fully prescribe hezbollah are they potentially going to be dealing with worse than just an upset jewish community on their hands do you see what i mean that potentially this could aggravate those ardent supporters of Hezbollah to ultimately start causing more problems for the UK than, and I say this very lightly, just marching through the streets of London waving a flag. Right. And so we've, we've got these sort of two Hezbollah constituencies, if, we've, if you like. There's, there are Hezbollah and its supporters abroad, which include Iran, obviously, and Syria. And I think that because of what's going on in the world at the moment, the British government probably has already done as much as possible to upset them. When they're not chanting death to America, death to Israel, they also sometimes manage to find time to throw in death to the United Kingdom or down down with the British crown. So the foreign friends of Hezbollah are already about as aggravated as they can be. When you come to the domestic pro-Hezbollah audience, as it were, 
anybody who thinks that there is something to be gained by appeasing them clearly hasn't learned any of the lessons of history. And yes, at the moment, they're marching through our streets with Hezbollah flags, but we've had instances all over the world of Hezbollah members and operatives and sympathizers gathering intelligence about targets which Hezbollah can then come and hit. And this was one of the memorable moments uh, a few years ago when a Hezbollah operative was captured in Cyprus and admitted, I was gathering intelligence about the Jews all over the world. That's what our organization is doing. We need to understand that letting people run rampant and, and, and brazenly support Hezbollah potentially even fundraising for them and potentially even recruiting for them is much more dangerous than any of the repercussions of proscribing them entirely because our intelligence services and our police, given the correct legal tools, are more than capable of taking on the risk posed by Islamist extremists. And indeed, if any of those people who are Hezbollah sympathizers at the moment were contemplating a terrorist attack in the UK, one would hope that the police and the intelligence services wouldn't be saying, ah, well, maybe they're thinking of carrying that that attack out on behalf of the political wing, uh, so we'll leave them alone. You know, of course not. They They would be going for them. So I don't think there's any particular risk of inflaming things in the UK. You might upset some individuals, But the only manner they would have of expressing that upset would be to openly support Hezbollah, which once they're prescribed would be a crime. So they basically would have to just put up and shut up, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do with a Hezbollah supporter, if not worse. As of today, how many signatures do you have? We've got 13,500 so far. And how many do you need? Well, we've we've surpassed the 10,000 trigger that the purpose of this was to force the government to respond and make a decision. And once you get 10,000 signatures on a parliamentary petition, the government is required under the, under the parliamentary petition rules to issue a proper response. And that task now falls on the desk of Sajid Javid. So we've passed the point at which we needed 10,000 signatures in order to get a government response. What we don't have are the 100,000 signatures in order to guarantee a parliamentary debate. But that's not exactly what we need here. The, the decision of whether uh, to prescribe Gideon, I feel like I should correct you just slightly because at 100,000 signatures, and it does very clearly say it on the governmental website, that 100,000 signatures, the position will be considered for debate, but not necessarily guaranteed for debate. We should stress well, it, that. It, you're, you're right to make the distinction, Phil, but the, 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 there is only one incident in history where a parliamentary petition with 100,000 signatures hasn't been considered. And that was a parliamentary petition to end subsidies for MPs in Parliament's bars. So <laughs> that was the that was the one best, and only best case we don't which, dwell on that one. I feel in, somehow in, in, indeed, but in in all other cases where where there have been a hundred thousand signatures, there has been a debate. But that's not actually what the goal of this was, because there's only one person who ultimately gets to decide which organisations are proscribed in this country, and that's the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid has to lay an order before Parliament, and Parliament can, if they want to, challenge him on that. But Sajid Javid has to lay an order before Parliament in order for anything to be proscribed. And until he does that, there is no real point particularly in having a parliamentary debate other than perhaps to place pressure on Sajid Javid. So we want to keep the pressure up. We want signatures to keep coming in. We want people to go onto that parliamentary petition website and sign up to 
proscribe the entirety of Hezbollah. But we've already got to the 10,000 signatures needed. And that was only in a matter of days. And I think this is something remarkable to think on as well. A lot of people listening might be thinking, gosh, 10,000 Jews signed this petition. But actually, this has gone far beyond the Jewish community. We've had military veterans and experts such as Colonel Richard Kemp speaking out and calling on the military community to come and sign this petition. We've had Muslim leaders such as Fiaz Mughal and uh, Majid Nawaz coming out and saying people need to get behind this. And so what we've actually now got is we've got 13,500 signatures, but they come from almost every single one of the 650 parliamentary constituencies in the UK. So this is very much a, a UK-wide petition, which has been signed by people on Orkney all the way through to people in St. Ives. So we're seeing here a real anger, not just from the Jewish community, but also from the British public, which uh, the, which, which actually the Jewish news polled using Comres, uh, I think it was last year, and found that I think 81% of the British public who expressed a view felt that Hezbollah should be proscribed in its entirety. So people are starting to look at this and they're saying, hang on a second, why is it, why on earth is it that we've got this terrorist organisation allowed to hold parades through the centre of London? You spoke earlier about legal means. Is there nothing in the Terrorism Act that would give Sajid Javid a tool, as it were, to ban the march and everything else connected with it? Surely there must be some legal means of doing it. Well, you're, you're, you're right. Now, the, the law falls in between two places on this. There's the Public Order Act, which is what governs marches and processions and also static protests. And in the exceptional circumstances where there's a risk of violent disorder, it's possible to ban a march. What you can't do is ban a static protest. So what we're saying is to Sajid Javid is regardless of whether you proscribe Hezbollah, for this Sunday, for this Al-Quds march, we, ex we are asking the police, it's not actually Sajid Javid's responsibility in, in the Public Order Act, but we're asking Cressida Dick to consider imposing conditions, which mean that the, the Al-Quds march can't be an Al-Quds march, it has to be an Al-Quds static protest, and that static protest should take place in a safe kettling pen, which exists off Whitehall. That's what we're asking for in terms of the march on Sunday. Now, what we're also asking for is what you alluded to, which is taking action under the Terrorism Act. And the Terrorism Act basically only allows action to be taken against proscribed organization. If an organization is proscribed, it's banned. And then you get all sorts of powers under the Terrorism Act. So Sajid Javid doesn't actually have anything much that he can do under the Terrorism Act until he bans the whole of Hezbollah. Now, that's his interpretation of the law. Our interpretation is slightly different because, of course, he has already banned, or rather the home, the, 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 a previous Home Secretary has already banned the military wing of Hezbollah. And once you ban the military wing, there are certain powers that fall in. So, for example, there is a criminal offence under Section 13 of the Terrorism Act of showing support... Uh, and, and wearing the uniform of a terrorist organization, and that would include carrying the Hezbollah flag. And where we differ from the, the Home Office is that the Home Office says, well, if someone carries the Hezbollah flag, it might just be that they're supporting the political wing. We're saying they only have one flag. There isn't a political wing flag. There's just one flag. It's used by the military wing. It's used by the political wing. And 
if, for example, the Boy Scouts were to decide that they were going to start using the Hezbollah flag, it wouldn't make it suddenly okay to carry the flag of the military wing of Hezbollah. And the same thing goes for this artificial distinction. Just because you say that there is a political wing of Hezbollah, it doesn't now mean you can carry the flag of Hezbollah, which is also the flag of the proscribed military wing. So it's a bit convoluted. Indeed. And it's it's very, very difficult, in particular for the police, who have this situation where they're, they're being advised by their legal experts that there's nothing they can do. And really, they're being denied the tools to do their job by the Home Secretary, and not just Sajid Javid, but a whole chain of Home Secretaries who've refused to make this decision in the past. And it means that when these marches happen, the police can do very little. And it's often the police who people see surrounding these marches, keeping them safe. And people think that the police are essentially betraying the Jewish community. And it's not really that simple. The police are being put in a very difficult corner because they aren't being given the legal powers to to take action against anybody who supports Hezbollah. They are in a situation where, according to their legal advisors, they actually have to prove that the person doesn't just support Hezbollah, it also, they also support Hezbollah's military activities. And that's obviously a very difficult thing to prove. Well, Gideon, as you have rightly identified, this is obviously a massive subject. It is immensely complicated. And we thank you very much indeed for taking the time to speak to us about it on this episode of The Jewish Views. Gideon Falter, chairman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. I think I should point out at this stage that this programme has absolutely issued an invitation to Sajid Javid to appear on the programme to talk about this subject. But the response we got simply said that the Home Secretary is not available to speak about this particular subject. But of course, he is welcome to air his views on the matter on any future episode of The Jewish Views. If you would like any more information about any of the stories featured in this week's show, please go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and we're delighted to have with us in the studio today Michael Greisman, photographer, author, talking about his new book, Jews in Uniform. Michael, let's start by, I mean, this is, we've got the book actually in front of us, and it's a beautiful production. I gather you published it yourself. Can you tell us why? Yes, indeed. I self-published. Originally, I was going to use some of the established Jewish publishers, but in the end, they wanted to do it their way. They didn't like some of the aspects of my book, and I thought the only way of getting what I wanted was to publish it myself. So it was a very steep learning curve for me. I bet it was. What was your original print run? A thousand copies. Right. (laughs) How's it doing? Not bad. (laughs) Good, good, good. This must have taken an enormous amount of research. How long long have you been? Well, I've been doing it uh, four years, about four years. I finished a previous photo book on Boris Bennett, the East End... Jewish photographer and that process I loved I just loved the whole process and I decided to find something else to do and four years ago I started started on this. Now you say it's a very small sample of those that served and some who gave their lives. Right. How did you choose the sample? Well the only way I could get in contact with veterans uh, themselves and their families was to advertise so I advertised quite extensively 
And I must have interviewed, I think, overall about 200 families, veterans, some veterans who are still alive. And if it's not the veterans themselves, it was their either sons or daughters who I interviewed. Once I met, had the initial contact, it's a bit like a pyramid. You visit one person, they know four others. And it just radiated out from there. Exactly. So I had to only choose those who I was able to contact. So you actually had more, I suspect, than you yes. actually could cope with well, in the, the book. The books have got about 105 or 110 contributors. As I said, I interviewed about 200 in the end. Does this cover all areas of war, conflict, or was it just the Second World War? Just the Second World War, yeah. Just the Second World War. That's right. Anyone who put on a, a uniform, basically. So this means it could have been firemen, ambulance men, Absolutely. ARPs, or anything like yep. that? I wanted to... I specifically wanted to do that. I wanted to show that the Jewish community contributed in every aspect of the war effort, whether it was a frontline pilot, navigator, somebody driving a tank, to somebody driving a bus up in Luton. And of course, <laughs> it's not just photographs, is it? You've, you've asked the people about their lives as well that's before they put the uniform on and presumably during. The that's right. So each time I interviewed somebody, I scanned as much data as they had on their loved one's war record. And then I went back and did a lot of research myself to fill in some of the gaps which they weren't able to supply. Did you have any contact with Ajax? Yes, I did. The introduction to the books written by Martin Sugarman, who is really the kind of expert on the Jewish military in World War II. And he's written like the, a textbook on the subject. So and he was very helpful to me. And would you but, say that you learnt quite a lot from putting this book together? Because I assume you obviously had a keen interest in the subject of Jews in uniform, but would you say that it taught you a lot? As you're it together? taught me an awful lot. I mean, my real interest came, started, and I'm sure it's the same with a lot of veterans' families. After the war, they didn't want to talk about their wartime experiences. Both my parents were in the services. My dad was in the, in the Air Force and my mum was a, was a wren, and neither of them really told us anything. <laughs> I had exactly the same experience. My father was in the Air Force, and it, it was very difficult to get in any sort of information yeah. about him after the war, yes. And I just felt, well, my children, if I don't know very much, my children know even less, and my grandchildren will know nothing. So I felt, well, this might be a, this is a real opportunity. Hopefully there won't be another call to arms for the whole country and this is a you know an interesting piece of social history so am i right in thinking you you feel you're sort of custodian of all this information that needs well, to think, be disseminated well i'm one of them i wouldn't say i'm the custodian <laughs> i'm one of them <laughs> but you've certainly risen through the ranks having published this yes yeah one should also not underestimate the amount of effort that has gone into this because not only have you obtained the backstory you've now managed to gather the photos you've also edited the photos as well haven't you you've, you've as, well, it, as it were you've cleaned helped them up. yes well, clean well them my up. other big passion is photography so i spend my, all my other free time taking photographs editing them so this was really an another joy how did yeah. you actually go about obtaining these photos then i assume that it was a case of that when you approach the families they're the ones who had these photos well i have the original advert says have you got photographs of your either a fa family member who was a veteran, which is 
well exposed, reasonably in focus, I'm interested. And just to clarify, it was that way around. It was you looking for the photos first as opposed to you had the backstories and then you went in search of. That's right, yeah. I wasn't prepared to publish any pictures that were completely unusable. And the layout of the book itself, I assume that this was done with a certain sense of intention because it's quite simplistic. And by that, I mean that you've, you've got the photo of the individual on the right-hand page and then you've got their backstory on the left and that is consistent throughout. Pretty much so. There's a lovely photograph, Michael, of a very young, handsome naval cadet on the front of the cover and I asked you before we came on air why he hadn't got the name of his ship on the cap badge. Tell us why that is. Well, maybe it's different nowadays in peacetime but certainly in wartime they'd never put the name of the ship on the headband it was a security thing so if sailors were in port nobody could kind of grab their uniform and then get onto the ship oh i see it was purely for security have you found this process quite moving because i just even glancing over the photos i found it quite humbling quite moving totally humbling certainly speaking to some of the veterans they it's just so humbling the whole thing was a humbling experience yeah did you find yeah. that people that, that weren't involved didn't realise how Jews were involved in all the forces and uniforms? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that was another one of my reasons for doing the book. There was this old, to use an expression, canard, that during the war the Jews didn't pull their weight. And I was determined to show that not only did they pull their weight... They put their lives in danger. They put their lives yes. in danger. A lot lost their lives, and that some of them were highly decorated. So, as you'll see in the book... And, of course, as we still do. Yep. (laughs) What are your aspirations for the book? What do you hope will happen? I mean, you briefly touched upon that you want to make sure that next generations learn about what really went on during the war and you don't want it forgotten. But where would you like to see this book go? Well, I purposely put a very extensive reading list at the back. So if people want to learn more about the Jewish effort, they can read about it. And perhaps encourage them maybe to look into their own family backgrounds and see what their their family, you know, family members did. Yes, exactly. How can one get hold of the book? I mean, where where is it now being marketed? Well, it's on Amazon and also through uh, my book distributor, YPD Books. Right. We'll make sure that we put a link on our website. Or they can go directly to. I've set up a, a single page website for the book itself by the name of the book yeah right jewsinuniform.com what's next for you Michael I was going to ask you that actually (laughs) (laughs) I thought you might have some ideas for me (laughs) (laughs) we never know this has obviously taken up a considerable amount of your time and now that it has reached its I suppose if not conclusion it's certainly reached a concluding chapter what would you say that you're going to look to do now? Because I assume that you're obviously your interest hasn't wavered. You must want to take this further somehow. I do. And I'm thinking about it. I ha- haven't come up with an answer yet. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> Please, <that's right. laughs> you'll you'll exactly. wake up one morning about three o'clock. I've got it. Eureka. Right. That's, Eureka that's, I'm moment. waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> and on that note, Michael, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. That was Michael Greisman, photographer and author, talking about his book, Jews in Uniform. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. 
email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we're at Jewish Views UK. Or you could go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, it seems a trifle strange to be talking about New Year's honours in the middle of June, but that is exactly what we're going to be speaking about now because The Jewish Views' Kate Fulton has been along to meet Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, MBE, on receiving his New Year's honour from Her Majesty the Queen only this week. He is the most senior surviving Jewish officer who served in World War II, and Kate has been along to meet him. Kate. I'm talking to Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen. I have the honour to speak to you, sir. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. And you've just had the most amazing honour given to you by the Queen, by Her Majesty the Queen. Can you tell us a little bit about the whole day, what you, uh, what you were awarded the honour for? I've spent a long time speaking to organisations and schools particularly about the Second World War. Uh, it's amazing how uh, ignorant young people are about the Second World War in Burma. They may know all about the war in Germany, but they know very little about the war in Burma. And you were in Burma? I was in Burma, yes. Can you give us a flavour? I know you probably can't even begin to describe everything that happened, but a flavour of what it was like there. Uh, well, it wasn't very pleasant. I mean, not only was the Japanese enemy, but there was the weather, the atmosphere, the tropical disease, and the afforestation, and uh, apart from the cruel Japanese enemy. When you came back after having been in the war, what what did you decide that you wanted to do? And your your MBE was for services to World War Two education. Was that was that something that, you, that was a driver for you from as soon as you got back? No, uh, it was it was because I, I saw how ignorant young people were, and t- teachers were not much better. That uh, I wanted to ensure that they did not have to go through another world war and that we had to teach them what the horrors of war were. What was it like being a Jew in Burma? Were you, were you like any other soldier? Were there any, any added complications? Uh, no, none at all. I had the rare uh, round there uh, of being a... Jewish officer in charge of Muslim troops. You were in charge of the Muslim troops? Did they know you were a Jew? They didn't know what a Jew was, and when I used to speak to them about the uh, Oba Ibrahim, Father Abraham, they used to call me the white Muslim. They didn't know what what a Jew was. Take us now, skip forward to your getting the MBE, what was that like? How did you find out? 
And how did you feel? Uh, I was notified by post, and uh, I w was very humbled by the award. And you went to the palace, in fact it was just the Friday, it was last Friday I believe. Yeah, it was last Friday, yes, that I went to the palace to be given the award. And what's it like there? Are you in a line? Are you are you with everybody? And the Queen was there? The Queen was there and uh, I was uh, really delighted that she was present in person in Auburn to give me the award. Did she come and speak to you at all? She spoke to me when I was given the award by her, yes. And you've got plenty of children and grandchildren to to talk to about about the war. Do you have any hopes and dreams for them? I hope that they don't have to go through the same process of winning an award that I did and that uh, they should be able to live a life of peace and of no uh, further war. I have the honour also of being with the son of uh, Colonel Cohen, Geoffrey Cohen. Geoffrey, tell me, was it extraordinary? Was it almost, was it like pandemonium in the, in the family when you realised, when you were told about this? Everybody, first of all, was very, very pleased and very delighted because I think my father certainly deserved the award. Nobody can uh, say to the contrary. But we were all thrilled, excited, the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren. It was something really special. And when you were growing up, did you used to talk about the war? Or was, it, was that always sort of part of your, the, the background, the backdrop, if you like, to, to family life? We certainly were aware of the war. We certainly were aware of my father's very, very, his army career. But it certainly wasn't part of you know, the day-to-day -day conversation, there were things that any normal family would talk about. I'm talking to Saul Taylor, who is the grandson of Colonel Cohen. Tell me a little bit about the, the University of Sunderland and the sort of family connection with that. When my grandfather got back from his army service, which, as we know, was a bit later than everybody else because the war in Burma lasted longer than the war in Europe, he threw himself into communal life. And one of the things he got involved in was education and local education in Sunderland. And in 1969, he became the founding chairman of governors of the new Sunderland Polytechnic University in Sunderland. In 1992, that polytechnic became a university. And in fact, my late grandmother, Judge Morella Cohen, was given the first honorary doctorate of law from the university in that year. In November of last year, my grandfather was greatly honoured by, by being given an honorary fellowship and he went up to Sunderland and addressed all the graduates. It was a very special moment. I have to say it's been a very special moment for me talking to three generations of such wonderful people. Thank you so much for sharing this day with, with me and um, Mazel Tov. Good luck to you all and may you all be free to uh, express your own wishes and hopes thank you thank you indeed i think that the whole country owes lieutenant colonel mordant cohen mbe a massive thank you for his service and indeed all of his comrades as well speaking there to kate fulton that's nearly it for this episode of the jewish views 
But it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. So I think it's fair to say it's been an upsetting few weeks for the Jewish community. A lot of upsets regarding Israel in terms of certain people's attitudes to Israel. And I think rather than comment on, on the issue, I think we need to look at a wider point, which is this is nothing new. The idea of Israel and the Jewish people is not a modern day phenomenon. And part of the problem, I guess, is people don't realize that. People don't realize that the connection to Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel, goes back thousands of years. And this week we have one of the most painful episodes in Jewish history. When on the cusp of entering the land of Israel as the Jewish nation for the first time under Moses, the spies were sent to the land and they came back with a report. And it was a report that damned the nation to 40 years in the desert. However, there's one word that did the damage. One word of three letters. Aleph, Feisamach, Ephes, but. And the understanding of the rabbis and the commentators was they didn't understand that of course Israel isn't perfect. Of course there would be challenges, but they would be able to overcome. I think so many times today in the modern era, no one is saying, not even Israel's greatest supporters are saying that Israel is perfect, that everything is absolutely the way it should be. But to recognize the absolute achievements of the modern state of Israel, to see the absolute beauty of the society they've created, of course there's issues, of course there's problems, and we hope and pray that those problems will be fixed and peace will come to the region. But there's a realization, then in Shalach Lecha, and now, that our message must always be as Jews, to see the positives, to realize the beauty, to realize the miracle of what we have, and please God, what we will always have, a light to the nations, a state of Israel that is trying very hard in a very difficult area of the world to show democracy, to show a sense of values and society, not perfectly, but in a way I think most of the Jewish world should and can be very very proud of. Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our rabbinic thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests for this week's programme, to Gideon Falter, chairman of the Campaign Against Antisemitism, to Michael Greisman, photographer, now technically author as well, telling us about his book, Jews in Uniform. Thank you also goes to Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, MBE, on receiving his New Year's honour from Her Majesty the Queen, and indeed to the rest of his family as well, speaking to Kate Fulton a little earlier on. And we must also thank our producer, Sue Greenberg. And we couldn't possibly forget to thank you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode of The Jewish Views, or indeed any other episode of The Jewish Views, by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Phil Dave. And from me, Tony Honigberg. And from me, Diana Toman. We hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.